Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Lawrence Hillman, PhD, and host Michael Lerner. Lawrence Hillman, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you so much. Very nice to see you, Michael. Lawrence, we I've heard of you for some time, but we met in an interesting way. Uh, a mutual friend of ours named Janet Harvey is former head of the uh, International Coaching Federation, whatever the right word is, um, gathered a group of us together to think about uh, how coaches can help their clients in the what we call the global holocrisis, the sort of complete enchilada of everything that's going on in the world, environmentally, socially, financially, technologically, and so on. And there were just a handful of us, and I was so grateful to see that you were one of them. So we just uh, spent uh, six sessions together exploring uh, the role of coaching in the polycrisis. Now, you are an astrologer and a professional uh, uh, archetypal astrological coach, a consultant to leaders of organizations, a workshop leader and lecturer. Um, uh, and uh, you are also, as it happens, the son of, uh, of one of the great archetypal psychologists, James Hillman, whose work has been foundational to the field of archetypal psychology. I've spent 40 years exploring archetypal psychologies, but I'm a relative newcomer to astrology. Uh, of course, I've known about it for years, but I only got drawn into it uh, past year or so. So I, I bring a beginner's mind to astrology. So um, as a starting point, I would just like to... Um, ask you to um, reflect on what being an astrological coach means to you. What, what do you do with people and organization as an astrological coach? Thank you for that wonderful question and for the introduction, Michael. You know, the key word here is archetypal. And you mentioned my background and you mentioned my father. And someone said to me once I was marinated in archetypes, you know, as a kid. And I, I really like that, that analogy. And so what I bring to the table is a very natural way to relate, see, explore, and develop archetypes in people. Um, my issue with archetypal psychology was always that it wasn't very practical and people would say well what are the methods what are the what are the ways how the how to's the how do I actually do this and my father always said that's not what I'm interested in I'm interested in for you to change your ways of seeing and that frustrated a lot of people and you know my father was a double Aries and and uh, very sort of driven and headstrong and and liked I sometimes compare it to he broke down a lot of sandcastles that was kind of his his thing, people's um, built up ideas about what is real and what is not real and, or, you know, truth and these kind of things, beliefs. And he loved to tear those down because he wanted people to see differently in a, in a more imaginal way. 
And I'm a double Capricorn, and so I'm a builder. And so I build sandcastles. And that's a big difference on the most foundational level of how we were different and how that it's also two, you know, horned animals that <laughs> don't always get along, even though they're different types. But so so um I I um have been a builder since the beginning. I'm also a, a trained architect. Um and so you know, I like to think of, okay, so I understand the tremendous power of this, of um, archetypes, and how can we um, somehow make this a useful method, a, a actual a applicable, practical way of relating to archetypes, fully understanding that we lose something on the way by putting it into some kind of methodology, but that the values gained were bigger than the, than the things lost. And so I was looking to create some kind of scaffolding between um, archetypal astrology and the real world. I'm sorry, archetypal psychology and the real world. I've also been um, practicing astrology, which to me has always been archetypal. And I'll get to that in a little bit. For the last 45 years, when I was 16, I had my first lesson. And, and uh, 10 minutes into my first lesson, I said to myself, this is what I'm going to do all my life. It was crystal clear to me. and. So um, that was a gift. It was a vision. It was clear that this was my way, but I also knew I was going to do lots of other things before. And I did do a lot of other things before I turned to this full time. The archetypal language, when used astrologically, gives it a structure, gives it a form, gives it a model. It was still too abstract and too woo-woo to start working in organizations because astrology is still considered, um, uh, you know, weird uh, on a good day. Um, and so it is not easy to walk into the door of an organization and say, hey, I'm an astrologer, I'd like to help. So six years ago, my partner and I, Richard Olivier out of London, who's been doing leadership development for the last 20 plus years based on Shakespeare, he's of course the son of Laurence Olivier, so we share that bigger than life um, father figure. And him and I designed, co-created this language, which is based on archetypal astrology, but we call it archetypes instead. It's called the method is called archetypes at work. And it is a very practical, hands-on way of not only assessing people for their archetypal patterns, so similar to drawing up a chart, but much simpler, an astrological chart, that is. And um and then developing any one of these characters that could use some help. Those characters meaning those inner parts of us. So it's a natural progression from archetypal psychology that I was marinated in, then the archetypal astrology I've been practicing forever, and now the archetypes at work um, that all do the same thing. They understand the multiplicity of psyche. And that to me is the most important skill set that people have to have in the modern world when I work with leaders. So what they get out of it is a language that helps them understand complexity, which is sort of the basic way that the world works these days, because complexity is a sort of right brain capability. You need to have imagination. You need to sit quietly, not have an answer. Keats is, um, you know, negative capability. We need these skills to be leaders today that aren't just data-driven, left brain, and logical. That's important, but it's not everything. So many leaders, particularly men, because men are particularly in charge these days. Um, in fact, in the West, it's white men. I showed that in my dissertation in, with statistics, if anyone's interested. That can be easily shown. But white men run, you know, government, 
um, military um, corporations and so forth. And so particularly in that world, for lots of different reasons, these right brain capabilities, which are imagination, dreaming, compassion, um, sensing, uh, you know, um, just sitting with no answers are very difficult. And so to teach that, to access that, we need language that is not judgmental and that is universal. And that's where archetypes come in because archetypes aren't gendered. They're not, um, they're not, um, they don't care what color you are or what gender you are or how old you are. Archetypes are universal experiences that we all share. So if we can have an archetypal language for leaders who are interested in developing their right brain capabilities, that's where we come in. Well, that's beautiful. Um, one of the things that you write about um, is the well-known fact that astrologically we are entering the age of Aquarius, coming out of the age of Pisces. And uh, that this, from an astrological point of view, is a very profound shift. Now, we all recognize that whether we call it the global polycrisis or anything else, that we are simply besieged by changes, um, environmental changes like climate change and so forth, uh, social changes, uh, you know, tremendous upheaval, um, technological changes, artificial intelligence, um, financial changes. The world is in an unprecedented financial situation. And for many people, not all, there's an immense feeling that everything's collapsing, that the world is falling apart. And, you know, uh, 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 biologists tell us that we're living in the Anthropocene, you know, the man-created world, and that we're, this is an, the sixth great age of extinctions. We're, you know, winnowing down life. Um, it's like a bottleneck of extinction. So there's particularly for people who pay attention to what's going on in the world this seems like as somebody once said if this isn't end times it's doing a good imitation you know and so there's this immense sense of of collapse at the same time we're entering the age of aquarius leaving the age of pisces as an astrologer how do you understand both the near-term situation, the next number of years, and then the longer-term situation as we face the reality of the polycrisis and what humanity will become as we enter the age of Aquarius? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's an important question. I will start by saying that I'm an optimist, and I know that's hard to even say these days, but I am. I don't believe this is the end of, of us as human beings on this planet, and I'm quite aware of the global polycrisis. Um, so I'm going to answer the question with a model, what I think, because you asked me, what is what about this collapse? Because there is clearly a collapse going on. So I want to be quite specific about the collapse. What is collapsing? <clears throat> and I'm going to answer it with an image, with a model image. Human, humanity and human beings have organized themselves in a pyramidical form <clears throat> for thousands of years, but let's just stick to the last age, the Piscean age, definitely there, where you have one powerful person at the top. 
you have a monolithic structure in an organization. So for instance, you have one Pope at the top down to the people in the pew, one CEO at the top down to the people on the line. You have one general at the top down to the people in the trenches, um, you know, and, and so forth. You, you, you get the point. It's a model that is very, so deeply ingrained, we don't even think about it. You, you're supposed to kiss up and kick down and 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 you know that's the that's what we're told. That model is incredibly pervasive in our thinking. We don't even question it. That model is no longer there. That model is still there um, uh, in lots of big companies and big organizations and and wherever we look. We also have it in politics. You know, one president or one king at the top in most places, down to people who are voting and or or subjects to the king and these kind of things. But um, when I say it's no longer there, I mean it's no longer there in the Aquarian age. And so let me say what I mean with that. I ask sometimes students um, when I'm teaching this, I say, so what do you think the new the new model looks like? If it's a, a three-dimensional pyramid is the old model. And I get things like a ball, a circle, a, you know, a cylinder. I get all kinds of different models. To me, what it is, is actually more dramatic. It is what I call a three-dimensional exploded matrix where you have this one dot at the top, which was like the center, is now split up into a endless matrix of which we are each a node on this matrix. We are incredibly tied into networks these days. That is the most Aquarian word I can think of. And, you know, even things that we haven't thought about before, but like the power grid that we're, you know, attached to and the, and the phone grid, you know, and the net cell, cell tower networks, we're all incredibly, through these devices, we are completely networked all the time. And that's increasing, even in places where people didn't have access to the internet, that's increasing. Micro, um, the Gates Foundation has a wonderful project they're doing with that. So this is globally increasing very quickly that more and more people are becoming part of this sort of global brain. Um, with things like that, there's a lot of there are a lot of problems, of course, and there's also a lot of great things with the internet, like with any other invention. The point is that that's a very different model. Imagine if you're a leader or even just a citizen completely in a pyramid mindset while you're living in a world that is an exploded three-dimensional matrix, you you won't understand because you don't know where the structure is. You don't know who to um, you know who to look up to and who to look down to. We're all sort of connected in a whole new form. We have a new responsibility in that age. We have a responsibility to how we filter the information that comes our way before we pass it on. Which, of course, with all the conversation about fake news and 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 bubbles that people are in and these kind of things, becomes an interesting assignment. But to me, what do I do personally as a human being? What filters do I use to read what I what comes my way, or listen, or hear, or, or feel what comes my way, and then pass it on? That's a new requirement for for a person in the in the modern age, <laughs> and. Some people are really good at it, and some people are failing at it horribly, just like with anything else that's new. But this, to me, is the is is the big shift. And so, what's collapsing are these structures everywhere, like the structure of vertical integration and these kind of things that are so well ingrained in big corporate thinking and in and in the military and so forth. Now, small and nimble and small groups wherever you go is the new is the new idea, which is a completely Aquarian idea, where the the nodes become teams, which is another way of thinking of a small network. So, so that's a, a radical 
a radical change for humanity. And we have no clue yet how to do that. We're just learning. And, you know, as someone once said, you know, the, the internet is a couple of days old as a baby. Imagine when it's 100 years old as a baby, you know, you know, in 500 years, if we're still around, how much more advanced these things are going to be. We have no idea yet what's coming our way as far as AI and, and um, being replaced by machines and these kind of things. There's a lot of really um, amazing in some way and scary in another way, technology coming our way. That's all part of the age of Aquarius. So I see mostly and mainly the structural shift is what we're struggling with because um, it is so radical that it affects everything else. I can't speak to any particular part of the polycrisis intelligently because it is so overwhelming. But if I understand the structural shift, <clears throat> then I can actually um, think about how to make a difference. And for instance, waste goes to in a whole different place. Think about eBay, for instance, you know, where people can re suddenly recycle things in an amazing way that wasn't possible before. I would love to know someone who did a study on how much things have been recycled that were not thrown away or, you know, they weren't sold at a yard sale, so you throw them away. Now you get on eBay and you can still send them to someone halfway across the world. That's a different way of distribution and of, and of connecting with people and goods and things that I think is going to really change. And again, it's 30 years old now, the internet, it's a, it's a, it's a split second in history. So where this is all going to me is, is to be seen. But with that, foundational shift in structure, I can at least understand and explain what's going on, which lowers my blood pressure a whole lot. That's really helpful. You know, Lawrence, as we talk, my eye keeps getting drawn to this photograph or painting over your shoulder, and I can't quite make it out. It seems to be a figure. But what is that? I forget the name of the painter. It's a French painting. There's a, a man and a woman, I think it's gods, I'm not sure, running. Um, it's a romantic painting, running, and and he's holding her, and, and she's got some kind of a shawl that's flowing behind her, and they're running together in the in the woods. It's a beautiful, mm. it's a beautiful painting. Yes. Thank you. Um let's talk about your teaching and experience of a few archetypes. And um, because many, if not most people, uh, have a deep life experience, both painful and joyful of love, uh, let's just start with Venus. Um, how do you understand Venus? What a great, one of my favorite questions ever asked me. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, in archetypal astrology, Venus is an archetype. In other words, the planets are archetypes. I'll just give a very quick, for those who have no idea what astrology is or what archetypal astrologers do, very quick image. To me, when I step into the night and I look up at the sky, the planets are performing a play in the heavens. It's a play. They're actors on a giant stage. Because I know what I know, I can tell if that play is a comedy or a tragedy. That's what astrology can do. In other words, you can read the quality of the moment. Then how that then translates into our charts and things like that is different, but that's in an essence what it is. And so if I, and then, you know, if I think about the actor, Venus, the archetype, 
then um, an archetype is complex. It's not just Venus, the goddess in Greek mythology. Go to any mythology, go to any um, culture, go to Africa, go to India, you will find that archetype represented. It's love, beauty, passion, chocolate, sweetness, seduction, gold, um, um, you know, relationships, also intrigues, backstabbing, lies, all of that belongs to this archetype. No archetype is good or bad, but those qualities are there. And so you'll find a cultural expression of this archetype in every culture because it's universal. You'll also find a um, personal expression of this archetype because the archetype is within everybody. And so what is more interesting for me than saying you're different than I is to say, hey, how do you express Venus? And we call her the lover in the archetypal model. How do you express the lover or love? And, um, and then get into an interesting conversation with somebody because it might be culturally very flavored and so forth. Now, in other words, we start with the archetype at the bottom. That's the universal connector. I have called archetypes the human genome of the soul. It's the connecting language, what we all share. And then up above that, you have the psychology. And then above that, you have the behavior. So the behavior trickles through. We can ask, why does a person behave like that? And we get a psychological answer. But really, the archetypes are underlying all of it. So the, so the lover or love or beauty or Venus, <clears throat> that archetype is key because it's relational. And we are relational creatures, most of us. There are some people who really don't like to be with other people, but most people are. And so um, she, he, there's a, the archetypes are not gendered. Um, she or he, the archetype of Venus brings us, they, if we want to get modern, bring us certain gifts. When we embody them well, brings us love, a sense of feeling good about ourselves, self-worth, net worth, these kind of questions that are interestingly use the same word in English. <clears throat> um, the word worth, um, you know, our, our ability to sell, you know, everybody's selling themselves. I don't care if people say they don't, they do. Everybody's trying to sell themselves. It's human nature. It's just a term. Um, um, and um, how we present ourselves, how we relate to other people. But also, I love the word, you know, part of Venus is also Eros. Again, it's an archetype. And Eros is what we're attracted to. Unfortunately, when I came to the States from Switzerland, I figured out very quickly that Eros and erotic was purely sexual. It didn't really understand the deepness of passionate, um, you know, amore. And so I looked for a word that would represent both. And I found the expression that is very American that, that works for this, which is that the lover or Venus really represents that part of, represents those things in the world that turn us on. I love that word because it works both ways. It's both a sexual component and also a emotional, you know, what we want to get connected to. And so um, the lover in a person, that energy in a person, again, it's a part, it's one of 10 characters in the model that I use. That part is the part that connects to other people that can fall in love, that can be, um, you know, uh, that has to be um, 
seduced. It's a part of us that has to be seduced. You know, a lot of people say, why does love go out of a relationship after six months? You know, it's like we were so hot and heavy when we met and now it's all gone. Why does that happen? Because Venus has to be seduced. And when you stop writing the notes to your new lover, you know, and stick them under the windshield and 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 uh, and make kisses on the on the on the shaving mirror and things like that, when you stop doing those things and sending each other flowers and taking each other out and those kind of things, when you stop doing that, Venus leaves the building. And then that part of you is dormant and is frustrated and start looking elsewhere. So this keeping love alive kind of thing means, like with all archetypes, continuously being aware of that part of yourself and doing something to honor that part of yourself. That's what um, the work is about in my mind. It's about becoming aware of all 10 and then knowing how to step into freely and easily into any one of them. My key philosophy in my life, Michael, is you do the gods or the gods do you. <laughs> what I mean with that is that either you're doing Venus or Venus does you. And Venus, when Venus does you, then you, in other words, if you don't acknowledge her and live her consciously and do something with her, then you feel jealous, you feel unloved, you have no sense of design and beauty, you feel, you feel, you know, uh, you, you feel left out of everything, you feel not, un, you know, you like Venus in the, in the stories, we have plenty of them, Aphrodite getting mad because nobody's looking at her. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of the 10 astrological archetypes, you have a your website, by the way, is, is really lovely. And you have keywords for the 10 astrological archetypes. So again, for those who don't know astrology, could you just briefly run through your summary of each of the 10? Sure. Um, I will do it in, in, in this model, in the archetypes of work model, because that's the archetypes model. That way I'm not, it's easier because we can do the planets in lots of different orders. I'll sure. do them in this sure. order. So yeah. we start with the sun, which is the sovereign, which is that part of you that says, I am, I want the inner sovereign that has to do with my purpose, my, my, my radiance to the world of my own inner sort of sense of me. Most people stop at astrology there. It becomes a sun sign astrology. You know, I'm a Leo means nothing to me. That's like telling me, you know, I'm a red dress. It doesn't matter. Um, uh, you know, a red dress has no context unless I know if it's a, if it's a, you know, an old man in it or a young woman in it, that's going to make a difference. And so that's, it's the context that matters, not the, 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 the I'm a Leo just means my son was in Leo when I was born. It doesn't say more than that. You have nine other actors on the stage. So it's very limited. It's like saying I have a shoe size 10. That might say something about you, but not much. So, so the sovereign is, but it is the core, which is also courage, courage and cœur and core are all from the same word root. And it's your heart. Cœur means heart in French. And so um, the sun is the first character in this in this order. The second one is Saturn, or the strategist. It's the part of you that is ordered, focused, organized, gets things together. Um, is is um, shall we say disciplined, becomes a master at something, stick to it, and this nose to the grindstone. That kind of a archetype. Um, next one is the nurturer, which is the moon, which is about caring, caring for others, feeding others, um, taking care of people. Um, um, you know, self-care, um, knowing how to pour yourself a bath, you know, feeding others, uh, soup kitchens, hugs, mothers, embrace, bosom, <laughs> um, all those things belong to, you know, safety, home, hearth, all of that belongs to the nurturer. 
Um, and what you can see as I as I run down this list is that these are very rich archetypes. They cover a large swath of our experience, just like all those words are multiple. But what we can as human beings is recognize what's at the core, which is the archetype. You can never see the actual archetype. You can only describe it, surround it. And so we are, by giving you these words, all of us can immediately start to feel what they have in common. Like, oh, okay, I, I sense why mother and and feeding and home and hearth all belong together and are different from lover or warrior or strategist, right? So that's the that's the the, the cultivating of language. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Lawrence Hillman, PhD, and host Michael Lerner. So that's the nurture. The next one is the lover, which I've just described, which is Venus. Um, and then we have the dreamer. And the dreamer is Neptune. That's our capacity to sort of break the veil. That's the part of us that understands non-duality, that, there's, that, that's a, that duality is, an, is a fantasy that nothing is separate from anything else. It's the part that likes to get stoned or drunk or just daydream or lie in the night and look up at the sky. It's the part of us that is most imaginative and has this um, right brain capability, maybe the easiest of all of the of all of our um, inner archetypes. And then we have the storyteller or Mercury, who is, you know, literally the storyteller, is the one who likes to connect and commute. And it's the mercurial part of us. By the way, most of these planets and archetypes have names that are um, um, in the English language. So Venus is Venusian and Mars is Martial and Mercury is Mercurial and Saturn is Saturnine and so on. So this is deeply embedded in our in our culture and language. And... Um, and so, uh, and, and again, we have the storyteller who also connects, is very quick and witted. And to me, the best embodiment of the quick-witted storyteller is Mark Twain. There's my favorite author of all times because he's so sharp with words and gets it and plays with it. And that mercurial way is a good example of a storyteller. Um, then we have the renegade or Uranus. I sometimes call this the third finger planet. <laughs> it's the part of us that does whatever it wants and doesn't really care what others think and it's our free and independent and and you know off the grid and completely outside of of what other people say and care it's the most democratic in the sense that it looks at other people as not um of any uh, in any other way this part of us in any other way than their humanity doesn't care again how they look or how old they are Uranus is the planet that rules the age of Aquarius. So we're all becoming more Uranian or being awakened in our Uranian way than ever before. So people putting a tattoo on their forehead was not really an option, but it's now perfectly acceptable. So that's the renegade sort of way of expressing my individuality and saying, you know, screw you if you don't like what I am. That's part of the Aquarian age as well. And that's another conversation, but that belongs there. So that's the Uranian side of us. Then comes Pluto, the transformer, which is about essentially in 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 you know in one in one um, simplest sentence to say it's about death and rebirth. And so Pluto transformations are life changing. When people go through a, go through a Pluto time, they they die sometimes literally, but that's minuscule compared to not and we don't look at that as astrologers 
Um, when, you know, nobody in their right mind would ever tell someone when they might die astrologically that I don't even know how to do it. And I think it's very unethical. But what we do do is say, you know, you're going through a death experience and that's not literal. And, you know, those of us who've been around more than, you know, five years have had such an experience at some point where things, everything seems to just die and collapse and we get stripped of everything. Um, it's, that's called a transit, one of these times when the planets activate certain parts of us in our chart. Another line that I have is, is um, pardon my French here, but bullshit doesn't survive a Pluto transit. Mm-hmm. So when Pluto is active in your chart, whatever is BS about that part of you is out the door. There's no way that that can survive. Pluto is much more powerful than those ego hanging on to, well, I'm a this, I'm a that, watch it all go right out the door. And people have really powerful experiences. I've been a practicing astrologer for 45 years, and I can tell you I've seen it all. Probably not, hopefully not, because I want to continue to do it. But I've seen a lot. And when Pluto transits are there, it's a great way to understand why why everything is dying in your life and why something new is 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 coming after that. It's the Phoenix experience. There is no Phoenix without ashes, and people want to have a Phoenix without ashes all the time, and that doesn't work that way. And the next one is um, the warrior or Mars, the very misunderstood and um, very feared um, culturally. And um, the warrior is about that part of you that can can aim at a target and get there. It's sharp. It's incisive. It's clear. It can stand up for what's right. It can it can fight for those who can't fight for themselves. It can defend against attacks. It can be. It's a very important. It's an archetypal martial artist, if you want. And um, everyone has the warrior somewhere. And last but not least, we have Jupiter, the explorer. And Jupiter is about expansion, about about sort of the opposite of Saturn's focus and narrowing in. Jupiter expands and explores and look around and you know, wow, look at the look how look at, at how big the world is and what we can explore. So it's both a philosopher and exploring, you know, sort of armchair. Uh, explorations and actual Indiana Jane and Joan Jones, you know, going out and uh, and and doing the work. So um, in the world, so traveling and exploration belong to. It. So that's a, a quick rundown of the characters. And and the cool thing about them, just if I can finish with this, there is not a human experience that I've ever seen that can't be described with either one or combinations of them. So they really are a full palette to describe anything. That's so beautiful. Lawrence, I just want to say I'm really enjoying this. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Conversation. So uh, in your on your website, obviously, you list uh, the 10 archetypes in the more conventional sense, the sun, the moon, uh, Mercury, um, uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, so on and so forth, with, with many of the same words. But... Um, why did you shift the order and what drove that shift in the order? It's a great question. So when Richard and I sat down to create the Archetypes at Worth model, we knew that what mattered was that we had the same 10 archetypes that astrology uses. That was the most important thing. Again, they're shuffled around in people. Everybody has them in some kind of a pattern, but they're always the same. It's like another analogy is, you know, cooking food. Um, you have the same 10 ingredients, you can make lots of different dishes. But let's stick with the theatrical one, which is the one we use. It's it's really better for sticking with it one, one set of images. So 
and you have these 10 actors, but for some people, you know, certain actors are lead actors and for other people, other actors are lead actors. And so for some, the warrior may be up front and they're always fighting for everything and attacking people and they're out there. And um, the lover is way back, you know, backstage, offstage, sitting, you know, we sometimes say they're benched, you know, they're in the back, they're not so important for that person. They're present. You can't not have a planet in you, but they may not be so active. So, so we decided, okay, but we have to somehow organize this again. We're trying to create a scaffolding. So what we did was we took a, a, a way of thinking about leadership because we work with leaders and this was, you know, particularly towards leaders, but not leaders of, you know, Fortune 500 companies, but anybody who is a leader, which in my mind, by the way, is everybody because we're all leading our own lives. <clears throat> and and we set an example to those around us about how we lead our lives. And that's why leadership matters, even on the smallest level, but certainly all the way up to, you know, rulers of countries. So, um, so the, uh, so the, the, organizations already have certain ideas that we knew we wanted to tie into so that it would be easier for them to understand our model. And so we just needed, we said, okay, we'll use an existing idea. Um, and then we intertwine that with the 10 archetypes. And now we have a good model. And the existing ideas, we added some stuff and changed some stuff. But essentially we said there are five realms of leadership. There is order to or organize things, right? And be orderly and get things. So there's some kind of, yeah, order. Then there is care, there is, um, there is relationships, big part of all. Then there is creativity. Then there is action, actually doing something. And then there's change. Change comes before creativity in the model. So um, uh, comes before, sorry, I'll, I'll say it again. First, there is, there's five realms. First, there is, Maybe we can make a note here, Ken, to take that out so it's clear. Um, so there's five realms that people understand who are working in this kind of a world that we wanted to talk to. The first realm is the realm of order, where we organize things. The second is the realm of relationship, where we connect with other people. The third realm is the realm of creativity, where we dream up new ideas and we communicate about what we already know and things like that. Um, the fourth realm is the realm of change because everything is changing all the time. And the fifth realm is the realm of action, of actually doing something. That's a pretty well understood model. Again, we modified it a little bit, but most organizations understand that those things have to be done uh, to be successful in an organization, any kind of grouping of people. And then we simply added the archetypes to those five realms and they fit absolutely perfectly. No, no accident, of course, but they lined up and that's how we got the new order but again it doesn't matter because you can step in anywhere you step in with the archetypes or the characters that you're most comfortable to it's like saying you can enter a stage from any side you don't have to come in from the front hmm. so um so many directions i could take this but a good one would be um you met Richard, uh, Lawrence Olivier's son. You shared the experience, which I also share. My father, Max Lerner, is famous political philosopher. Uh, and so the experience of being the son of a famous person is one I can definitely relate to. Uh, but you and Richard had more famous fathers <laughs> uh, and, um, and both really extraordinary um, contributors to the human experience. Um, 
where did you actually meet? What happened? How did you come together? And how does that partnership continue to work for you? Thank you. So, um, first of all, Richard and I have a club called The Sun Also Rises, which is our own little <laughs> chapter. And um, uh, we, we might send an invitation. The problem with the term is that it doesn't work for women because we've met plenty of women with famous fathers. So, um, uh, but you you might get an invitation one day. Oh, but, my goodness. That's <laughs> but, but it's a it's a fun little club. So, um but essentially, my father published Richard's, um, he wrote an autobiography after his father died. And uh, my father published it with Spring. And then my father turned, um, I guess, 70 in 96. And he invited Richard in New York to his birthday party. My wife and I were there. And and um, my father said, hey, you know, Richard Olivier is here. Um, you should meet him. You might like him. You guys have this father thing in common. So Richard and I met, you know, at the party and the rest is history. Then he invited me to London to the Globe Theatre and I did some work there um, on Shakespeare and astrology. Um, and Richard was, you know, at the Globe at the time. And then Richard very soon after that started this movement with combining leadership and Shakespeare. He's a trained theatre director. And, um, you know, we did a bunch of workshops together, started to do workshops together on personal development, just using his skills and my skills together and ended up six years ago in France with a group of people in a chateau with a chef for a week, which was quite extraordinary, um, and doing um, Hamlet and uh, archetypal astrology and constellations um, for a week with these people. And um, and it was such an ecstatic experience. We were on a total high. And on the way home, um, we went, uh, we all spent the night at the, at the airport in a hotel. My wife went to bed and there was a third teacher with us. Um, and Michael, his name is Michael. And and Michael and Richard and I stayed, stayed up um, all night. And essentially, Richard asked me, hey, could you trans could you translate this what we have experienced into business speak because I work with organizations and I'd love to do this with businesses and I said sure and that was the beginning and then Richard and I you know co-created this language and this model and then wrote the book in 2019 and then covid happened um which was actually for us very useful because it gave us more time to straighten out what we were actually doing and um, it also gave me time to um, write the assessment or co-create the assessment. I was kind of running that project, but certainly with Richard's um, strong input. And um, we have now an assessment that organizations just love. So it's an archetypal assessment that gives you a readout of your preferences of these archetypes. So yeah, I'm really comfortable with this one. I'm really not so comfortable with that one. And that gives opportunities for development. And we use it in, in L&D, leadership development, and, and OD and team development and all kinds of things. And it's quite exciting how quickly this has taken off. Uh, last um, eight, nine months, it's been just insane. And so we are also training people. Um, we have a guild of uh, archetypes at work practitioners, people who have learned this language. It's about 106 hours of training overall. It's very much an embodied language. So all that theater stuff that Richard knows comes in. And so people are in their bodies doing stuff all the time to really feel embody and not just intellectual understand archetypes that they're talking about. 
and then um, we uh, invite people to become guild members, and then they go out and do the work in organizations. And sometimes they need other uh, other guild members because their project is bigger than they know, and so they can find other members in the guild. It's kind of an old-fashioned European model, and it's quite exciting how how that our biggest problem right now is not having enough people. Let us go, if we may, to your uh, growing up with James Hillman as your father. What was it like? Uh, well, um, he was absent most of the time. He wasn't really very engaged as a father. And um, I had a lot of resentment about that until one day he invited me right before I had my first daughter. He invited me to um, a men's retreat that he was doing with um, Coleman Barks, it was at the time, and Michael Mead, and 110 guys in the woods. This was in the early 90s uh, in uh, the East Coast somewhere. And Asheville, North Carolina, that's where it was. And um, and I went there with my dukes up, you know, I was in therapy, I was ready, I was going to, I was going to, you know, confront him and why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that and, you know, all those things. And something very different happened. I had this very strong um, experience that um, I recognized what I did receive. And he would have these presentations in the evening, again, these 110 extremely wounded, some of them men, you know, Vietnam vets and all kinds of people with really deep wounding. And um, and I would sit there and, the, and he would talk to them and I realized that so many of them didn't get what he was saying. Like it just, you know, it was, he, he had a way of sometimes talking. It was hard to, again, it was very abstract and very theoretical and very wonderful and poetic, but how do I actually apply this to my life? A lot of people would ask me. And I just sat there and I'm like, I get it. I totally get it. And I it sort of, it, I realized what I, what I had gotten, not what I hadn't gotten. And I started to focus instead of on why did he never pitch me a baseball in the yard? Instead of like, oh my God, I was marinated in archetypes. And I and I had this tremendous surge of gratitude, which I was able to express to him. And it was a really important moment for both of us. And then I went back, had my first child, and you know, life began in a whole new way. It was an important moment. So since then, from then on forward, I started to value all the things that he had given me which were profound, a way of thinking, a way of not just accepting status quo, a way of thinking outside of the box, but most of all an archetypal eye, you know, to be able to, to see. And then also the sense that I wanted to build onto that and make it, make it, take it further, make it more practical, make it more of something people can actually apply in a useful way on a daily basis. So in a way, which was also, you know, later than when I finally got around to a PhD in my 50s, I sort of built my work on, you know, for the doctorate honoring him and his work, and he was my tip or the theory and practice that I built on. So it's like the standing on the shoulders of, of those who have gone before you, and I did that very specifically and on purpose on his work on archetypal thinking, which is beyond archetypal psychology. It's really archetypal thinking. And so um, it was a, a late-blooming relationship. I was also privileged to be there the last six weeks of his life and spend some very quality time with him. So um, I feel very, very fortunate and also very ready to move on to build my own things from what the gifts that he has given me. Hmm. What was your mother like? Who was she and what was she like? 
My mother died when I was 19. She was a dreamer. She was uh, very imaginative, extremely creative. She was. She lived sort of in a fantasy, imaginal world all of her life. She was Swedish. Her name was um, Katharina Hillman. Well, Katharina Kempe was her name, her maiden name. But she, um, you know, I have this strange sort of three-color background where, where my mother was Swedish, my father was American, and I was born and raised in Switzerland, the third country. Um, from those two. And so people have asked me, well, how does that work? And I've always explained it that my um, my mind, in other words, how I was trained to think and 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 just my my early learning and you know how to how to how to learn and teach, my mind is is Swiss. you know, that's that ability to build things. It's also where I went to architecture school partially. My um, heart, which is my passion and where I get excited and where I, you know, go out into the world, my heart is American because I feel I love this country and I love to be here and I feel the passion to fight for, you know, what's left of it. And then um, my soul is Swedish, which is that depth of, you know, the pond in the woods. And and um, I still go to Sweden every summer. I've gone there almost every summer of my life. And it is just so incredibly uh, enriching on a soul level. So I have those three cultures. also makes me kind of a globetrotter, you know, that having that from my mother and speaking the language and the culture and just knowing my way around in so many places also makes me homeless in a way. Hmm. Since you did your... PhD based on uh, your father's work. Uh, how much of his work have you read and studied? I mean, he has, I don't know what it is, 10 volumes, or I think the collected works runs 10, 12 volumes. How much have you read? Um, um, I read very, very little until I started, um, until he died. It was very hard for me to read anything. It was, first of all, I felt it was. Um, in some strange way competing with my work you know i felt like it was I, I couldn't find my own voice if his voice was in my head and and when i finally started to read his work and then read a lot of it um i can't quantify it but i read a lot of his work um, when i was um, studying it and i have now over the you know 11 years since he passed um it's incredibly understandable and it just rings so many bells to what I heard all my life. So it's it's like, yeah, of course, nicely said, nicely put into language what I had already internalized in so many ways. So I feel, again, it made me feel very fortunate. You, you rightly said, I mean, James Hillman was known as the bad boy of archetypal psychology. That's the kind of nickname. And you're right, as a double Aries, he liked to take down sandcastles. Um, and uh, he liked to be, I've, I have um, done a lot of work at the New School with James Hillman's work, and I can't claim to have read everything. But my question for you is, at a theoretical level of how your father held archetypal studies, the archetypal eye, and archetypal psychology, is there a place where you diverge either experientially or theoretically from his teaching? In two places. Um, first, in the in his in his you know verboten notion of um, 
of developmental psychology that you know that 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 I think he I totally disagree with him. Of course, we develop, and so which is why the archetypes of work model is also quite unique because it actually merges archetypal psychology and developmental psychology into one model, which I don't believe anyone else has done. That's really key. Um, because each of these archetypes can be developed. And so you're developing different parts of yourself as opposed to a, a singular me. And um, and that's one area. And the other is in the spiritual world. You know, he didn't go there. I saw him very often, if I was in one of his lectures, just shut someone down who asked him a spiritual question. And I have a very strong spiritual sense. And, 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 um, and I wrote a book 20 years plus ago, you know, the alignments book, about um, the soul coming in and, and and many lives and how astrology works with that and and how you can see that in a chart and these kind of things. So um, I have a strong spiritual um, belief system and um, it's not religious, but it's very spiritual. And um, that fits perfectly. I mean, first of all, I've noticed both of those things about Hillman's work. Secondly, that's where I diverge with him also. And so I'm grateful that you diverge with him there. Uh, how do you, so you know that in many of the traditions in archetypal psychology, there's this sense that we have both soul and spirit. And the soul is soft and tender, stays close to the body, is a very embodied aspect of us. And the spirit soars up into abstraction on the universe and sort of lightning quick while the soul is uh, slow and tender. Um, in your teaching, do you use that dichotomy between soul and spirit? And more broadly, how do you hold it and how does it fit into your teaching? Yeah, I use it slightly differently. I think there's just so many ways to approach this and um, that that notion I don't get into it. it. It immediately gets into when you talk about spirit rising and soul sinking, which is peaks and veils, one of my favorite things he ever wrote. Um, you know, it's great, but it's not so approachable for for modernity. I think it's difficult for people like people in their 30s have a hard time with that concept. So I use a slightly different model that I think is easier but kind of says the same thing. It's that yin-yang split. So when I wrote my paper, I thought about um, how do I talk about, you know, the masculine and the feminine, because that's really, it's a masculine flight towards the sky and a feminine embodiment of soul. <laughs> and so the conversation is really, really important. It's the key of my, it's the key conversation of my dissertation, of my work, of everything I believe in is this left brain, right brain kind of a thing. So that's a model that I think people can relate to easier. I understand the science behind left brain and right brain. Your whole brain is always involved. I understand it's not a biological thing. It's a concept that people can relate to. <clears throat> and, and so the, so, so that the, so that the, um, so that the left brain um, is the, you know, culturally dominant way of thinking about things. It's evidence-based, it's data-driven, it's scientific, according to the scientific model, it's, you know, quantitative research, all of those things are left brain. And then right brain are the emotional, are the, um, well, emotional, it's too complex of a word, but they're certainly the sensing and the, and the reflecting and the internal and the yielding and the wandering and the empty space creating and the, um, 
and the receiving as opposed to giving out. And that's the qualitative research and the and the you know right brain capabilities that I that I spend so much time on. So that's how I separate the two. And I find them absolutely critical in modern conversation. I'll even end with a, in this little piece with a with a um with a term that I coined in my dissertation, and I call it um, the yin function. And the yin function is a term that is um, on purpose, a way to avoid getting into masculine and feminine because those are such loaded words these days. And instead the yin function is a, is a mixture of yin and yang, which most people understand as, you know, as, as a, a, a dual way of seeing things light and dark and the way that we usually split the world. Um, day and night and so on, left and right, and um, and function from Jung's typology. And so a yin function is a person's capability for their feminine. And that has nothing to do with gender, by the way. There are plenty of men who have a great yin function, and there's plenty of women who don't have a great yin function, so or well-developed yin function. So those those that concept um, plays into, to me, the peaks and veils conversation, but a little bit more modernized. But it's the same same notion. From, from from my perspective. Lawrence, how many years passed when you reconnected with your father till his death? How many years were you in closer connection with him? Uh, I don't know. So let's see. He died about 11 years ago. So um, probably, you know, 20, something like that. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, a long time. And um, yeah, so we had had, you know, we had con certainly connected again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm What I'm trying to get at really, because you are uniquely prepared to speak of it, is, I mean, you said he's a double Aries, okay. Uh, and you've said a few other things about him, but what were the qualities of the human being that you perceived both in childhood when he was mostly absent and then when you reconnected? I mean, what was he like to be around in your family and in your time after you reconnected where you'd started your own family? I think that um, I've had this conversation with Richard a lot and you could probably chime in. But I think somebody who, as the son of, of someone well-known, I think the being a child of a genius is difficult. Anybody who is an expert or super good at what they do. Um, perhaps you know Mark Rylance, um, actor, who's a friend of Richard's and mine. We've had this conversation, the three of us. Um, and... And, you know, it's incredibly hard. All of us are family men. And we talked about how hard it is to be a family man and at the same time be, you know, highly creative and deeply involved in your work. It is really difficult. And so um, I think the modern generation of men, or, or we're not the youngest generation, we're all in our 60s, but um, it's easier for us than it was for our fathers. In fact, I know that because the culture has changed and because um, we're more involved as fathers anyway, you know, with parenting and the relationships have changed. We're not expecting our wives to sit at home and, and, you know, do the housework. So it's a different world and it's made it easier for our generation. I think that generation 
really didn't know how to have it all, so to speak, how to have family and at the same time be, um, you know, be brilliant at what they do. And um, a lot of the work also pulled them away, literally, you know, as in, I know Richard's father was traveling, filming and, you know, being on set and he had both parents were actors. So, um, and in my case, my father would go off and lecture. I mean, sometimes he took us with him, like when we went to Chicago in the 60s and lived there, you know, for months. But this kind of a, um, this kind of a, a immersion in one's work, when it's not about a nine to five job, but they become their work, um, is hard for a child to, to live with. And it was hard for me until I had to face the same dilemma. And I had to figure out how to, you know, be fully immersed in my work creatively, where you lose the sense of time. That doesn't really work when you're, when you have children, and so, um, and and a spouse for that matter. So it's been a it's been a a learning experience, and I, all I can say is I hope I'm doing better than our parents did. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Lawrence Hillman, PhD, and host Michael Lerner. And what about who you came to see after you had your own family and during the 20 years that you were connected? I mean, would you say you were close in those 20 years or was it simply that you could appreciate him and you came to events with him? But And then you spoke about the closeness before his death. But I'm curious what your experience of the human being was in that latter part? I don't think we became much closer in those 20 years. I just think it was more, it was a more workable relationship where he was more available and, you know, age had taken a little bit of the, of the gung-ho sort of, you know, double areas kind of edge off. And, um, and I felt it was easier to connect with him. Um, But there wasn't, you know, more, um ease to get close to him. I don't think there were a lot of people who were very close to him. I think it was difficult for people to get close to him because he was really so much in that um in that mental place. Astrologically, he has no earth in his chart. You know, it's not that's not very grounded. It's all up here. So it's like he's floating this much above the ground all the time. I have five out of ten planets in Earth. So, you know, I'm extremely grounded. I'm an architect. I can build things with my hands. I'm very physical whereas he was not. And so that's a that's just a difference in 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 approachability. Some people are very um you know are more earthy and others are less earthy. And that that's going to and then so you know that's one one major difference there as well. Mm-hmm. One of the conversations that I've had with astrologers um uh since i began to immerse myself it's been i think it's been about six months or a year that i've really started to immerse myself in astrology and one of my qualities is that when i immerse myself i really immerse myself but um it's the question of how it works why it works and And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Now, you properly in your book say it's not that the planets cause things, it's synchronicity. It's as above, so below. And at a certain level, that's an explanation. 
it certainly requires a profoundly metaphysical stance, but it's still not entirely satisfying to me. I'm going to carry on here for a couple of minutes um, because there have been so many different astrologies, right? So many. And they differ from each other all over the place. I mean, there are certain commonalities, but they differ immensely. So how can we say that astrology works because of synchronicity and as above, so below, when the astrologies differ so much among them and the, the astrologers differ so much? So that's one dimension. So what I did was in order to explain to people who thought I was crazy to be looking into astrology because I'm considered a somewhat sensible human being. I I assembled, I haven't actually written it up, but in my mind, I've assembled an essay called Astrologers for Astrology for Non-Believers. And it goes like this. It goes, astrology represents an incredibly rich system of archetypes. And archetypes are very real in-depth psychology. Now, we can argue whether they're intrapsychic or transpersonal, but nonetheless, they are very real, at least intrapsychically. There's no question about that. And so when somebody tells you, they ask you their birth date, your birth date, so you give them a birth date, and that produces, depending on which school of astrology you're in, a sun sign and a bunch of planetary, uh, you know, uh, uh, positions. And they tell you you're a Leo or you're a Scorpio or whatever. Well, I think it's something like 80 or 90 percent of people believe that their sun sign is accurate, even if they have no belief in astrology. So how is it that people who have no belief in astrology believe that their sun sign is accurate. Well, I believe what happens is that each of these is a meme, if you will, which has survived thousands of years of refinement. And these are the most powerful stories we can tell about, you know, the cosmos. And so just like we have receptors for cannabis, we have receptors for powerful astrological stories. So a powerful astrological story lights up a certain part of our brain and our whole body-mind system lights up with a sense of verisimilitude, not necessarily truth, but verisimilitude. It feels real. And since in the archetypal world, feeling real is reality, that the fact that it lights up that part of our brain, it feels real. And then we start exploring, well, where's your moon? Another, well, that feels real too. And then if you get into it, if you are susceptible, like people have different levels of susceptibility to archetypal thinking in general and astrological thinking in particular. So if you are susceptible and you have, as James Hillman says, an archetypal eye or you develop an archetypal eye, you can understand the full impact of astrology as introducing you to uh, what Roberto Asagioli calls all of your subpersonalities, if you will, 
incarnated as different astrological archetypes. And with this immense sense that this really works for you and that it opens up a field of connection with self, with soul, with psyche, which, as you point out, the rational domain simply doesn't address. So that's my theory of, of, uh, of astrology for non-believers. But what that doesn't explain is the numerous examples of, quote, coincidences or, quote, synchronicities, which go beyond what that explains. Uh, so when I look at, um, you know, really extraordinary examples, both historical in terms of historical epics and individuals, which are very persuasive, my theory of astrology for non-believers doesn't work. All right. So my challenge to you, first of all, what do you think of my system of astrology for non-believers? And secondly, if you say, well, it's just as above, so below, or you know, synchronicity, how does that really fit with the reality that different astrologies differ from each other? Okay. It's a great question, and I'm glad you're bringing it up. So I'll start with the latter part of the question, then get back to your to your model. Um, the two big differences are how we reference in astrologies are how we reference the sky, which is essentially, in a nutshell, Western versus Vedic, and the different zodiacs, how we see the zodiac. The planets are the same in every astrology. The relationships between the planets are the same in other in, in every astrology. So people like Rick Tarnas, who really only look at planets and their relationships, doesn't care about the zodiac and gets out of that conversation completely um, when he's looking at historical things. So this planet was aligned with that planet. doesn't matter which system you're in, that's going to be the same. So they're actually remarkably the same. The fact that every culture has created an, an astrology for the last 5,000 years, every major, the Incas, the Egyptians, the Greeks the Arabs and so on, Before, because that's the case, to me says more about the validity of astrology than that it's not valid. Um, I also have a tongue-in-cheek response about different astrologies from Harry Potter, which is that the wand finds the magician. And I really believe that I don't really care what school somebody comes from or what tools they use or what method they use. I look at the end product. In other words, if this is useful for a person, that is my only criteria. If this makes a person walk away from a astrology session saying, this is useful for me, and somebody can be arrogant and say, well, you're just a really good person reader. And so you are just figuring out, you know, they give you little hints and micro gestures. And so you can, you can know in which direction to go. There's all of that out there. You know, there's the, there's the debunkers out there all the time. To me, that's a completely useless way of going about a very beautiful art. It's like saying, you know, I'm going to analyze this painting based on the chemistry of the colors and that's not it's not the essence of the painting we are talking about a and this starts to bring me to your to your first part we are talking about a right brain language a right brain language is not measurable or addressable with a left brain approach so i don't care which parts of the brain light up it's interesting i like science but it's not the purpose of doing a reading. The purpose of doing a reading is relating to a person's soul. That will be like saying, I don't want to reduce the feeling of love between two people to firing of synapses in my brain. That would be awfully sad. So 
I'm I'm not interested in that conversation. I understand that. I understand it's important. But I used to spend a lot of time trying to prove and trying to be accepted in the scientific. I have a very, very scientific background. And I also have an engineering master. So, you know, I, I get that kind of thinking. Doesn't interest me. What interests me is the soulful language that we're so hungry for that can speak to this other side, to these other experiences. So that would be my sort of overall stance in this conversation. The as above, so below simply says that there is no separation between us and the planets, that the mindset that we're approaching this with is that the universe is one, which every spiritual teaching ends up there. There is oneness. There is no separation. The whole non-duality movement of our day is very much about that. There's no separation. Um, people who come back from psychedelic trips tell you the same thing. There is no separation. Um, but we have created this separation, that there's something going on in the sky and there's something going on in the earth and there's no correlation. If they're part of the same system, if we assume that for a moment, and we're trying to understand something that's as complex and as confusing as human behavior, which is part of the system, we can go to the only part of the system that's actually extremely organized, which is the movements of the planets. I have argued before that the only thing that we know for sure, that we know 100% for sure, is where the planets are going to be in 24 hours or in 72 years or in 25,000 years. <laughs> and so that gives us some structure in a very chaotic reality. And so if we go there, we can get some kind of a understanding of this chaos that we call human experience by looking at this very structured place and because they're not separate, we can understand something about what's going on over here from what's going on over here. But that means we have to be able to read what's going on over here. We have to be able to read the language that the planets are speaking. So that's that's my, my answer. So I don't think you have to be a believer, but you can look at the um you can look at the efficacy of it. Does it actually help people? And you know, and and if it if it and and again to just dismiss, well, it helps people because you're telling them what they want to hear is also total BS. Those are people who have never actually had a reading or been in a in a professional astrological setting. And so, to me, it is really um, the the to me the proof really is in the pudding. That's why I keep doing it because it helps people. And people say this has changed my life. I've talked to you for an hour. And it's changed my life. I've gotten that literally hundreds and hundreds of times in my life. That is humbling and makes me continue to do what I do. I completely get that. It's a beautiful response. I accept that completely for readings with individual people. But if we go back to your point about Rick Tarnas and his extraordinary book, Cosmos and Psyche, and he's not alone in this, um, he is reading not only individuals, but whole periods of history. And so my struggle, I, I totally understand how a gifted astrologer helps an individual who is open to it in transformative ways. What I haven't worked out is how one can read cosmos and psyche and how to explain it. In other words, either it's an incredible example of selection bias, and I've said this to Rick. I did a wonderful conversation with him. Either it's an incredible example of selection bias that 
Rick is so brilliant that he looked at all of history and cherry picked all the examples of people and things that fit within an astrological framework. Or something's going on. One of those two. Right. If what's going on, I can't get to what's going on from your accurate observation that what matters to you is that the astrological reading of high quality so often is transformative from people. That's a separate experience. Okay, here's the link, if I understand you correctly, Michael. It's a paraphrasing of a Nietzsche quote. We can take any what if we know why. Mm-hmm. It was used by Simon Wiesenthal, but it's actually from a lot. Um, talking about the Holocaust, but it's actually a Nietzsche quote, and it's one of my favorite lines ever. So astrology, for me, People are saying WTF all over the place right now. (laughs) I never asked that question, ever. Because to me, what's happening in the world makes completely and perfect sense from an astrological perspective. It gives me the why to the horrific what that's going on. And it's not an excuse. It's an objective saying, here's what's going on, so here's what I'm going to expect. And so what happens isn't shocking, isn't isn't terrifying isn't um it can still be extremely disturbing but it's not a surprise because i know the why to the what so for instance the u.s pluto return that people have been excited about for 30 years um doesn't matter what astrological system you believe in unless you're vedic and you believe in pluto that's another conversation um the u.s pluto return is incredibly evident and that's beyond this conversation but it's it's um, stuff that astrologers have been, like I said, very excited about for a long time. It's been written up all over the place in, in our community and even elsewhere. And um, and now it's manifesting. We're in the middle of it. So um, that lowers my stress level tremendously because I get a why to the what. That's its usefulness for the global connection so that's again that's like instead of talking to an individual that's talking to the culture i've written several articles on my website about different things um i wrote about the pandemic from the pluto perspective and so on so people can be free to go there and 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 read whatever they're interested in to me there are ways to give us answers and the response i got from a lot of people on some of those articles from around the world was thank you now it makes sense my stress level has just dropped that to me is valuable. No, I agree with that. Um, but for r- listeners who uh, haven't consulted your website or haven't read the thousands of things that have been written about the U.S. Pluto return, can you encapsulate your sense of, of what it means? Sure. So essentially, planets have orbital periods, how long it takes them to go around the zodiac once or around the sun. And um pluto has an orbital period of approximately 248 years give or take it's not exact because it's a it's not a a perfect circle it's a longer sometimes and shorter at other times but about 248 years and so 248 years ago 1776 or one pluto cycle ago it's not exactly 248 years it is however long a time ago 1776 was Pluto was in the same place in the zodiac where it is now. So Pluto has come around full circle. Circles, cycles in astrology are important. For instance, 
the full moon is a cycle every month when the moon comes back to where it was a month before. And so we see that as a full moon. That's a new beginning. Um, um, our birthdays, when the sun comes back to where it was, as seen from the earth, uh, in a geocentric view, the sun comes back to where it was a year before. So that's um, um, a cycle that we pay attention to and so on. A lot of people know about the Saturn return cycle at about 29 and 58 and 87. So these are important years. Um, and Pluto, of course, nobody experiences in their personal life a 248-year cycle. But um, cultures do and countries do. And the United States is experiencing right now its first Pluto return. So Pluto is back to where it was between about January and about December of this year, give or take. It moves backwards and forwards a little bit and there's some things going on. But that's about the time period. Again, these things are not precise and on the day. These are these are eras. It's not um, a switch you turn on and off. And so um, what it means is that the Pluto part of the culture, which is things that are hidden. Remember I said death, dying, and rebirth. So things that are the, the foundational essence of who do we really want to be. Pluto goes to the bottom. Remember BS doesn't survive a Pluto transit. So BS in this culture also doesn't survive a Pluto transit. This is a Pluto transit to itself. So we're getting back to the foundations. Who do we really want to be? You know, we're talking a whole lot about the founders of the country and what does that really mean and who was excluded and all these things that were just taken for granted. Um, when I came to the States, you know, 35 or so years ago, um, there wasn't was not a lot of talk about, hey, Columbus didn't um, discover America. And by the way, look what we did to Native Americans and how um, capitalism is based on slavery. These conversations were not really spoken of in those days. So there's a lot of soul searching to the foundations going back to the deepest, darkest places that we don't want to go and admit to where we are. And the pushback from those who don't want to deal with these, who want to just pretend like it didn't happen. And let's keep this out of schools and let's not talk about, um, you know, anything that disrupts this sort of white privilege 276 years is, is, um, is quite strong because there's a huge fear of Pluto in the culture in general. And so this is just bringing up the whole Pluto fear and the, the culture wars, the, you know, the black versus white, all of these conversations are deeply rooted in a Pluto story. Um, it's interesting to note, I think Ray Grassi has pointed out that the UK has had, and they've had two Pluto returns already, and they're already fa fa far past them because they've been around longer. Um, first Pluto return started slavery, second Pluto return ended slavery. Interesting, just kind of noting of, of quality of time, of shifting of thinking. So um, we don't have any experience with that, but we are at the foundation of who we want to be. I've never thought we would be talking about, are we even going to be a democracy? Or, you know, what is a democracy? Do we deserve to be a democracy? These questions are extraordinary if you think about them. They are foundational to the existence of what it means to be in this country. The fact that it's split, you know, the way it is, is a big part of that tension causing the creation of the conversation. Hmm. That's causal. So um, to me, that sort of makes sense. So that's the Pluto return is that we're in this deep, dark place and we will emerge, hopefully as a phoenix, but sometimes breakdown just leads to, to breakdown. I'm an optimist. But there is hope that this is a bottleneck through which we're going, that we eventually end up with a completely renewed sense of what it means 
for America to be America. And then starting again in baby steps the way we did in 1777, 78, and so on. That's my optimistic hope. But to get there, this is a tough year. And Pluto transits don't end when the transit ends. You know, next year and the year after are still tough years because it takes a while for this stuff to settle. Combine that with the age of Aquarius and you've got a whole lot of change on our hands. That's painful and people don't like it. So the whole movement of going back to some kind of utopia in the 50s or wherever is that fear of what's actually happening because we we sense it. Like you said, we have we have some kind of receptors to these things and we feel it. We just can't put words to it. Mm. Lawrence, this has been so far an extraordinary conversation. We're nearing the end. I want to ask you, uh, what have we not discussed? What have I not asked you that you would like to address, if anything? I don't know. I think you've covered a lot of a lot of really important ground here. And, you know, I think we're both passionate about, about this these topics. And I think we could go on forever and maybe, you know, making it making the meal not overly rich is is more in line with the times. And um maybe we'll maybe we'll just leave it at where we are. I imagine that we may well come together again for further conversations like this. <laughs> will be my pleasure it's a it's a total pleasure to talk to you and to have met you and it is um you know it it is i have said before that astrology is archetypal astrology specifically because it's not predictive that archetypal astrology is the healing language of the 21st century i've said that before because these archetypes are universal that everyone can relate to this idea of the human genome of the soul and so, um, you know, we, it's also a very popular language in, um, in IDE, you know, in, in um, parts of organizations that deal with, um, with fairness and with equity and with um, racism and these kind of things that exist everywhere. And because it's a universal language, it doesn't matter which culture you go to. It's, this is not a, um, a, a model that is ground in any particular culture. That's why every culture in the world that's major culture over time has created its own astrology. So the archetypal model, even more than astrology, is a universal language. We need a universal language to bridge otherness. And I'm very hopeful that this language can do that, as I see it does. Well, I think that's beautiful. And I, I love your focus on the archetypal language as the universal language, because it is broader, of which astrology is such a profound exemplary, you know, uh, example. Um, but I, I agree with you that archetypal language is, I love the DNA of the soul, you know, I love that. And um, I'm so grateful. Um, I'm grateful that you survived being the son of a famous person. That is not necessarily an easy thing to survive. Uh, I'm grateful that um, you and Richard Olivier co-created archetypes at work. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for your teachings, and I'm also grateful for your optimism. Optimism is in short supply these days, and so to be able to face 
the astrological reality, the archetypal reality, and to embrace all of this with a frame of hope uh, is is an achievement. And I thank you for it. Thank you, Michael. I'll end with with sort of a tongue-in-cheek line that I say to people who are suffering in a you know with a transit, and this is true, I think, for the collective as well, is that by definition, every transit has an expiration date. <laughs> and if the transit is indicated because that's the cycle cyclical nature of things so if the if the if you know that also means that by definition every crisis as read astrologically has an expiration date mm -hmm. lawrence hellman astrologer uh, uh, archetypal coach consultant lecturer writer uh and um just wonderful human being thank you for being with us at the new school Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a total pleasure. Take care. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Lawrence Hillman and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.